I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. From Backpage, I'm Martin Gregg and this is Between the Lines, a podcast telling the stories behind great sports writing. He was always elusive when it came to trying to find out the truth or otherwise to the rumours around him. I'm sure that's sort of deliberate on his part, but it's what makes him so interesting. It's ten years since the cycling journalist Richard Moore published his first book, In Search of Robert Miller. It's 24 years since the subject of that book last rode in the Tour de France. A lot has changed since then. In 2017, Miller confirmed that he had undergone a gender change. During the 2017 Tour de France, it was Philippa York, no longer Robert Miller, who provided race analysis for the broadcaster ITV4. As Moore discusses in the conversation you're about to listen to, his book deals with a complex character and one not without contradictions. But at its core, Moore's book is a restoration of an athlete's legacy. An athlete who was clearly a huge inspiration to the writer, who himself competed internationally as a cyclist. It's a book that combines biography with a real-life detective story. Brilliantly executed, but its engine is the enigma at its core. First of all, I just want to um, reflect on the kind of personal element to the book. Um, Miller was obviously somebody who came on your radar as quite a, a young child uh, and became a kind of inspiration. I, I was a young child rather than him. <laughs> yes. Um, can you tell us a bit about that first connection you had with Miller? Yeah, I mean, cycling was in my family, I suppose. My dad was a keen cyclist, not a racing cyclist, but he um, used to ride his bike a lot. And I always sort of put the, that activity on this sort of pedestal, I suppose, on wet holidays in the north of Scotland. Mm. And uh, my dad used to cycle everywhere. We used to, we used to go everywhere in the car on these twisting you know, narrow roads and I used to get mm. terribly carsick and we used to drive up behind my, my dad out in the fresh air on his bike and I used to see him on his bike and think that looks much better than this <laughs> <laughs> as, a, as, a, as the car stopped again for another, another bit of car sickness um, so I always, I always idealised the activity of cycling it always really appealed to me um, on quite a deep level I think and and obviously my dad was keen on the sport and he followed the sport as much as he could in those days on TV, which was difficult. But mm. during the Tour de France, it was on a weekly sort of half-hour um, highlight show uh, on World of Sport on ITV, mm. presented by Dickie Davis. Yeah, I and um, there was one year in 84, 1984, we'd just moved to England. So I was 11 and we were watching the, the, the Tour de France and I sat watching it with my dad and, you know, I was very conscious of being a, a Scottish kid in England mm, mm. and I said to my dad um, are there any any Scots in the race and he said there's one Robert Miller was riding as my dad told me and I said has he got any chance and my dad said no absolutely not he's from Scotland and he won a stage that year he'd won a stage the previous year as well but I remember watching that stage with my dad to Guzinej in the, in the Pyrenees it was, a, it, was a, it was a summer finish you know that was really inspiring, and I can still remember just how inspiring it was. And and I think 
part part of the appeal was that that Tour de France coverage was so different to any other sporting contest that you could yeah. watch on TV. It was it was really grainy. Mm. I, I guess it was quite hard to beam images from the tops of mountains and. Yeah. And the commentary, it sounded like it was coming down a crackly phone line. It, it just seemed so alien to, you know, the, the normal kind of sporting uh, stuff that we watch, the football pitches, athletics tracks and so on. This was just, I don't know, it just, it just really appealed to me. And Robert Miller, from that moment, really fascinated me. I suppose as a, as a youngster at that point, um, born in Scotland, but in England at that point, there was the idea of being a, an outsider mm. in, a, in a different culture and there seemed to be a kind of personal identification that, mm. that he was a Scottish guy in this kind of alien environment and as a, a youngster you maybe identified with him in that level as well? I think so definitely when you're a teenager you do feel anyway quite often quite of an, a bit of an outsider and that's even more so if you are in a, I suppose a strange culture it's mm. not that strange England but you know you, you were certainly made to feel different and here was Robert Miller doing a sport that was very different and he was a sort of an oddball within that sport as well you know as I as I discovered as I you know followed his career a bit more closely he was somebody who stood apart even from this odd breed of cyclists so on on many levels he was a really interesting character one of the things I think that adds another dimension to the book is the fact that the personal dimension is given a bit more depth by the fact that you actually cross paths with Miller. You mean, I think you were maybe 15 at the time and it was a training camp. Mm. Can you tell us a bit about the, the first encounters? I went on a training camp to Stirling in 1989. You know, been following Robert Miller then for five years or so. Cycling in general, I, I loved the sport and Robert Miller was the guy that we followed because he was the, the not just the only Scottish guy, but the only British guy performing at that level and there was this great hope every year that he might win the Tour de France you know after he mm. finished fourth in 1984 and the fact that he excelled in the high mountains where the Tour tends to be won and lost really gave a lot of us hope false hope as it turned out that he might one day win the Tour and um, that that by 89 that it was pretty clear that wasn't going to happen but he came back to Scotland over the winter to lead a you know Robert Miller training camp and it was hugely um, exciting for all of us, I think, to, to be there. Uh, unfortunately, Robert Miller didn't ride his bike that year. He'd had an operation on a saddle sore, so he was he was there, but not riding his bike. The following year, he did come again uh, to the training camp, and, and he did ride his bike with us. So that, you know, just to sit in a, in a bunch of cyclists with Robert Miller in mm. it was, you, you were pinching yourself, you know, yeah. and... Uh, uh, you know, just you, you remember these little details like uh, he was wearing this incredibly cool thermal uh, top with a hood, which nobody wore. Um, and of course, he didn't use the hood, but um, you remember everything that he was wearing. Yeah. Uh, you know, all the little details about his bike, the way that he sat on the bike. He had a slight, slightly squint, mm. almost crab like way of sitting on the bike. He had these this tiny upper body mm. and these huge legs, like really. Th- big thighs and you know you studied every little aspect of everything that he did but and he was quite not not he wasn't approachable or friendly at all but neither was he unapproachable or unfriendly Mm. he was sort of cool and aloof Mm. which is exactly how you expected Robert Miller to be in a way but I do remember he did a and a for the younger riders and, you know, all the questions were about the Tour de France. And at, at some point in the, in the Q&A, he just sort of paused and said, 
I uh, don't know why you're all asking me questions about the Tour de France, eh? I don't think any of you'd be riding it. <laughs> and it was, it was brutal, and it really <laughs> yeah. it put us in our place. But um, it was, you know, it was harsh. But it was, it was actually ultimately it was true. And he he sort of dealt in um, in logic and in mm. sort of hard cold truths. Yeah. He wasn't a warm or sentimental. Or a particularly emotional person. No, I mean I think if the if the the jagged elements of his personality were coming through in a a room full of fifteen year olds who had ambitions, then you know that that probably says just about everything about you know the the nature of his personality, doesn't it? Mm. Yeah, yeah. But you know I, it, this is what made him interesting, and it's funny because mm. as a journalist now. You, you have these difficult, awkward people, and in cycling especially, you know, Bradley Wiggins, mm. nightmare. You know, Mark Cavendish, nightmare. They can be prickly, they can be rude, they can be they can be brilliant as well, and they they come out with fantastic quotes. And it's difficult as a journalist to detach yourself from that and say, well, hang on a second. Yeah, Bradley Wiggins, Mark Cavendish, they are difficult to deal with, but. One is the greatest sprinter of all time. The other one was the first British rider to win the tour. They've given us fabulous stories. They've given us brilliant material to work with. Mm. When I went back to look at Robert Miller's career, I, I spoke to a lot of journalists who covered him at the time, and very few of them really had a good word to say about him. Yeah. They just regard him as a pain in the neck. Yeah. But obviously, for me and others watching at home, he wasn't a pain in the neck. He was an interesting bloke. So we didn't have to deal with him directly. I mean, I think one of the really interesting angles of the book is this in search of element which really has two dimensions is the idea of trying to search for and rediscover his legacy but also the physical search mm. but just to stop off on, on the first strand of, of rediscovering his legacy that was obviously a process that you felt had to be undertaken because he had kind of disappeared into the annals a bit did you, did you feel that and you felt you had to rectify that? The idea for the book came about from a conversation in the pub with Richard Bath, a journalist in Scotland, who, you know, asked, as journalists often ask each other whether they want to write any books, and I said, well, the only book I would really like to write is um, the biography of Robert Miller, but the fact that he disappeared seemed to be a an insurmountable problem, mm. and it was Richard who suggested the title "In Search of," and as soon as he mm-hmm. said those three words, the penny dropped, and it seemed this is the way to do it because. I didn't need to find it. The book was about trying to find him rather than actually finding him. And in terms of his legacy, I suppose there are two elements. There was at that time this... It was obvious that there was this emerging generation of British cyclists who were going to do great things, but Robert Miller was still the greatest. In fact, I think at the time he was head and shoulders really above anybody else in in British cycling In, in terms of the Tour de France and the Grand Tours, you know, second in the Giro, twice second in the Vuelta, fourth in the Tour de France. N- nobody else had, had a record that came close to that. Mm-hmm. He had disappeared, and there, there were rumours about why he disappeared, and, and those rumours had been aired in a tabloid newspaper back mm-hmm. in the sort of early 2000s. Mm-hmm. Um, and the rumours were that he was having sex change, and that, you know, that, and, and so, so that some of the headlines and the stories around that were, as you would expect, sensationalist and, and sort of slightly... In, in bad taste mm. and, and mocking and humorous and they took away from Robert Miller the cyclist and what he'd mm. achieved they, they presented him in, a, in, this, in this as I say this mocking light really and, and I wanted to um, write a book about Robert Miller the cyclist and what 
an incredible cyclist he'd been and and to restore in people's imaginations and minds the fact that he had been this trailblazing pioneering bike rider the other element of the search is is really significant in the book as well um, where, where you're physically searching for, for, for Robert Miller in that sense it's almost like a bit of a detective story mm. and there is an element of suspense there that must have been really exciting I'd imagine mm. as, as a writer to have to have that carrot of, of trying to find out what had happened yeah I'm not actually I, I'm not actually searching for Robert Miller though that's a weird thing I'm, mm. I'm searching for his personality I'm yeah. searching for his in a, in a way his essence yeah <laughs> if yeah. you like I spent a lot of time in Glasgow where we are now we're around the corner from the bike shop Billy Bills on Cycles mm. and that was one of the most powerful experiences for me going into that bike shop which was run by his mentor Billy Bilsland mm. and up on the wall still is the is his King of the Mountains jersey from 1984 and I said in the book you know it was it was sort of in a it's in a glass frame like you know pinned like yeah. a like a rare butterfly mm. it's a bit like Robert Miller as well kind of fluttering away out of reach and wherever I went and you know you thought you had him he would flutter away there was a, a great quote his his other mentor in France Jacques Andre said to me he, was, he said Robert was like a little cockerel he said he loved to be looked at and admired but didn't like people getting too close to him he, yeah. would, he would disappear mm-hmm. and that's kind of what it was like coming to Glasgow and meeting people that he'd grown up with and worked with and been to school with all of them had memories impressions of him but no, none of them really felt like they knew who he was mm. and that, that's what was fascinating piecing together all these elements of his personality and trying to work him out and in terms of trying to actually find Robert Miller I didn't, I didn't actually really want to do that mm. and I didn't try too hard to do that the last thing I wanted to do was to turn up on his doorstep unannounced and unwanted and I didn't feel felt whatever the truth was about Robert Miller whoever he is, whatever he became, it was up to him to, to, to tell that particular story. Mm. You know, that those rumours around him are obviously really interesting and are certainly part of the book. Couldn't, couldn't ignore them, had to investigate them as much as possible. But I didn't want to say, I didn't want to tell something about Robert Miller in the book that he wouldn't necessarily want told. That element of it, the detective story, was really thrilling as a, mm. as a writer to meet all these people and put together this jigsaw and I was really inspired by a book um, by Jonathan Coe which I read that winter before I did this book called Like a Fiery Elephant and it's his biography of a writer B.S. Johnson who was an experimental novelist in the 70s and I'm a big fan of Jonathan Coe's novels and I picked up this book not knowing anything at all about B.S. Johnson and not being interested in him and he'd written novels in boxes where you could read the pages at random and He'd written books where there were holes in the pages so you could see events in the future and things like that. Very avant-garde. And he'd committed suicide. And Jonathan Coe had been fascinated by him in a, in a way, in a similar way to my fascination with Robert Miller. He just was this sort of slightly enigmatic, interesting bloke. And he, he wrote this huge, big biography of him, Like a Fiery Elephant. And it, it was also a detective story. It was him going back to places he'd been in his life, meeting people who'd been involved in his life and piecing together trying to understand his personality his character and and so that that was really inspiring because it gave me a way to to write the book absolutely and i think that one of the great achievements of the book is that you succeed in, in piecing together this remarkable legacy was there a moral quandary for you in the sense of, of trying to to piece together someone who who 
maybe want, wanted to remain aloof? It's, it's a really difficult balance to strike because on the one hand I was writing a very personal book about somebody who mm-hmm. I had followed closely, liked and cared for and about but on the other hand I am a journalist as well mm-hmm. and I don't know that they're incompatible but there are certainly tensions that arise from yeah. that what I was very conscious of with the decision I made writing the book was that I wasn't writing the book for Robert Miller mm-hmm. there, was, there were certain things I had to go in search of questions I had to ask people I had to try and track down who might not present a very flattering picture of Miller and I was also very conscious as I embarked on it that at the end of it I might not like Robert Miller mm-hmm. that, that I might find out things about him and I might just decide I didn't mm-hmm. I didn't like him and I was really I was prepared for that and I thought that would be quite a difficult book to, to write and also for people to read Actually, the opposite happened. I, I, th- I did try, certainly, to, tr- to, to speak to people who, who didn't like him, and there were, there were people who didn't like him, but the people I met who did like him, I found really liked him. Mm-hmm. You know, people like Wayne Bennington in France, who... Yeah, people... Robert Miller had a reputation for being particularly sort of tight with his money, mm-hmm. and there were stories about him. I'm not sure that all of them are actually true. Mm-hmm. They become part of that person's story, and they they hint at part of the character that is usually there. Miller, Miller might not have avoided paying payages by driving off the road and cutting through gates with bolt cutters that yeah. he kept in the boot, allegedly. He may not have done that, but the fact that that story was told about him suggests that his reputation for being tight with money was well earned. Was well earned. But then I would go and meet this guy, Wayne Bennington, who was a, a rider far lower down on the food chain in professional cycling, mm-hmm. who Miller really took under his wing and supported and, and I think, financially helped as well. And he told a completely different story about Robert Miller that was really, really fascinating. And you got this sense of somebody who, if he trusted people, he really trusted them and, and became very, very close to them. I, w- I was clear that I had to tell him that I was writing the book but I was clear that I was telling him I was writing the book rather than asking for his permission yeah. to write the book. And, you know, I, I kept emailing him and, and I, I sort of sent him the odd email updating him on my progress with the book. And I, I, the, the contact was made through a, a third party and the message came back, Robert is, Robert is happy for you to write a book about his career as a cyclist, I think mm-hmm. was, the, was the exact uh, expression. And I kept emailing him and emailing him and emailing him. And then at some point... Um, he popped up on some forum, uh, some website forum, um, and I emailed him again. And he popped up on the forum because some, somebody had said something that, that had upset him about his time at British Cycling as a coach, I think. And so I, you know, perhaps slightly deviously, emailed him on that subject with some questions. I'd, I'd emailed him lots of questions that he hadn't responded to, and then mm-hmm. I emailed him on this one, and, and he did respond. And that opened up a correspondence that lasted about 10 days um, and you know that forms the epilogue to the book that correspondence and it worked for me it worked perfectly and as soon as I started getting those emails I realised this is the ending of the book but it is, a, it is a difficult question who's your responsibility to is it to the subject or is it to the reader Yeah. and I think it, it's, it's kind of both in a way but mm-hmm. ultimately the reader is the person that really matters I think I mean that's not to say that it's okay to, to, to be dis- you can't be dishonest or, or, or say things that are not true to the person yeah. you're writing a book about but there are certain things that you, you do which are to, in order to 
be able to write the book that you want to write. Yeah. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. I mean, it seems rereading the book that there definitely was an element of trust between yourself and Miller because if he wanted to make life difficult for you in terms of the people around him, um, the people who he had grown to know and trust over his cycling career, he could have made life di- difficult for you, but mm. I'm not saying you were pushing open doors all the time, but the doors weren't slammed in your face either, so maybe there was a, 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 was there maybe a tacit acceptance by Miller that, that what you were doing was generally okay by him? I felt there was, yeah. I mean, I, the other contact I'd had with him when I'd actually... You know, he'd actually known who I was rather than just some kid at a training camp. Was mm-hmm. in 1998, I rode the, the the Tour of Britain, the Crew Tour, and he was our team manager there. So he knew who I was, and the contact I made with him was through another rider on the team who'd been quite close to him. When I did get into the the later years of his life, and I was exploring the rumours about him and asking people who'd lived near him in Daventry, where he'd lived mm-hmm. for a while after he, he retired, you know, I was I was well aware that that he wouldn't have been particularly comfortable with me uh, exploring those those rumours. I mean, I, but then, how can you not? Mm-hmm. You can't ignore um, a story like that. And so, I, but I tried to do it as sensitively as possible. Mm-hmm. Again, there was nothing definitive. There was nothing... It, it, he was always elusive when it came to trying to find out the truth or otherwise to the rumours around him. Mm-hmm. It was it was exactly the same. You know, that the pattern was, was completed. I'm sure... Yeah. That's sort of deliberate on his part, but it's what makes him so interesting. Absolutely, I, mean, I remember we were talking before about the launch of the book, and I remember being at the launch in 2007, and uh, there was a lot of people from the, the Scottish cycling community um, there, and I remember thinking, wouldn't it be outrageous if Robert Miller walked through the door right now? Mm. But it would kind of, it would maybe undermine the, mm. the, the the premise of the book because I think it almost helped that he remained in the shadows. Mm. Mean this maybe he, maybe he was there. <laughs> maybe he was. <laughs> maybe he was there. Uh, no, I was. It was. It was an amazing event, occasion that in an Italian bar, as, as I remember, in the Merchant City. But Arthur Campbell was there, who had taught him French, mm-hmm. and had been the president of of Scottish cycling and British cycling for quite a few years. Um, he died a few weeks later. In fact, he, he died out. He, you know, he was still. He was talking at that on that night about going up to. Um, his house near Aviemore, I think, riding his bike. He was still riding his bike a lot, and he died, I think, uh, um, 
um, I think he had a heart attack, I can't exactly remember, but he, he died, it was just weeks later, mm-hmm. and he'd been in such great form that night, arguing with Chris Hoy's dad, David Hoy, who was there as well, mm-hmm. Chris Hoy was there too, and all these people were there who were part of the Robert Miller story, um, John Story as well, who, who'd been, who'd run the Glenmarnock Wheelers, who... Um, He'd had a stroke and he was he wasn't well he wasn't particularly well but he came with his daughter and it was it was an incredible incredibly sort of moving night you yeah, know I, I really felt really quite honoured that all these people had come out and mm-hmm. I'm saying I felt honoured they were they were out because it was Robert Miller as well it was a sort of it was a sort of tribute to Robert Miller in his absence yeah. in a way you know and I I just had this impression that all these people there that that Miller had been a really significant person whether they'd known him or not mm-hmm. that he was somebody who people wanted to come out and remember in that way you could say he was a, a strong presence in that room by virtue of his absence virtue yeah. of his absence yeah um, but it's interesting that you spoke a bit about um, liking or not liking the subject of the mm. book and uh, as I was rereading it um, what emerges is a, an incredibly complex and layered personality almost the more you look into it the more layers you find and the more complex it becomes and, and the, the question of whether you you like the person or not becomes a bit irrelevant there are people in the book who didn't like, particularly like him Phil Liggett the psycho commentator was not was not a fan of his at all um, Peter Keane who'd who'd employed him at Brit- or not employed him but sacked him at British Cycling rather w- was sort of not fussed one way or the other but he certainly wasn't wasn't a big fan and you know he he had definitely crossed people and John Parker who he'd shared a, an apartment with at the club in Paris ACBB back in the early 80s he was not a fan of his at all but he did he did tell me some great stories you know the, the they were when they when the two of them were sharing this apartment in Paris. They they were both trying to learn French, and the way to do that was um, well. Robert Miller had sort of been taking a crash course in French from Arthur Campbell, who I mentioned earlier, but he, his French wasn't great when he arrived in Paris. So they had a rule, the two of them, that they would only speak English after five o'clock in the evening. And I said to him, "So how did that go?" He said, "We just didn't talk until five o'clock in the evening." <laughs> But I did become very sympathetic towards him, mm. and I suppose I did end up liking him, mm. even though, as you say, that's in a way immaterial. I mean, obviously Miller wasn't wasn't the first Brit to go go to France, but it, it, it seemed like he was the one whose personality was best suited to survival, which mm. essentially it really was in such a competitive and alienating environment. Um, there's a wonderful uh, quote from Billy Bilsland when he's saying all these French writers could be jabbering away and Miller would just be sitting there reading the Reader's mm. Digest mm. You know, uh, he didn't need other people he was happy on his own with his mm. own company mm. um, and that seemed to be um, that seemed to allow him to, to survive and thrive in that environment yeah de- definitely it was an essential trait the other guy I spoke to Jamie McGann, who was a contemporary of Miller's and a very, very talented bike rider, and I went to see him in Danoon, and he was so such a warm, friendly guy. I remember, you know, this was back in two thousand six, but his his wife served me up delicious lasagna, and you know, it was a very warm family home that he had, and he's a lovely, lovely bloke. And he'd gone like Miller, he'd gone to France as a as a as a youngster to try and turn professional, and he, he couldn't handle the the isolation of it, the loneliness. I remember he said, the great line, he said, it wasn't when you lost, that's not when it was really hard, it was when you won. 
and you went home to your apartment on your own mm. and you had nobody to celebrate with, nobody to share the moment with at all. Mm-hmm. And that that just killed him. That killed him. And it, Miller, was, unusually, was able to cope with that. And, you know, there was a guy I spoke to who, uh, another contemporary of his from Glasgow, Davy Whitehall, who, again, was a training partner. So on, and he said, you know, Robert, sort of, even when in Glasgow, was sort of paving the way for disappearing by not forming close relationships with people. Mm-hmm. He, he, I don't know if that was, it was such a conscious thing or a deliberate thing, but um, he said that he, he deliberately didn't get close to people because he knew that he would be leaving them behind. There's a great quote in the book where, where Miller says, in my mind, I'm doing it for, for Robert Miller. And that to me was almost like one of the keys to the whole book because there's this tension of... This was a guy who obviously wanted to achieve extraordinary things with his life, um, but he wasn't really interested in the world around him. He didn't. He didn't really care what other people thought about those things that he achieved. And because of that, he he rubbed up against so many people because mm. he was genuinely. He only seemed to want to do it for himself. Yeah, there's this paradox with him, though. You know, the, the story I write near the start of the book because I suppose the, this goes right back to me become interested in Robert Miller was the fact he was Scottish mm-hmm. and yet Robert Miller was somebody who sort of disowned Scotland and said very disparaging things about Glasgow and, and Scotland and yet at the same time in 1992 when the Tour de France was the tour of the European communities and the numbers every day had the European flag on it, Robert Miller every morning would sit and scratch a, a saltire into the European flag and this weird paradox it's almost like wherever he was he would define himself as being elsewhere or different mm-hmm. you know it was like if he was in Europe he would be fiercely Scottish and if he was in, in Scotland he'd be fiercely un-Scottish and anti-Scottish mm-hmm. you know that that's just the nature the contrary sort of nature of his personality I think in some respects and the other paradox is that you know he was a loner an individual who in Scotland certainly everything he did was with a view to going off on his own and surviving and thriving on his own but yet he ended up in France obviously as a professional cyclist in a team and it is a team sport and the only way you can he had a a career that in the end lasted 12, 13, 14 years as a professional Um, you cannot survive that long as a professional bike rider if you're not if you can't survive in a team environment Mm-hmm. And so he did. He did. You know, when when it suited him, when he when he, when he had to operate in a team environment, he could. And he ended up, you know, towards the end of his career, being a, a really good teammate. To mm-hmm. I remember the nineteen ninety Tour de France, in particular, where Greg LeMond won it, and he was a teammate. Greg LeMond speaks very warmly of Robert Miller. He really got his sense of humour, and they mm-hmm. they got on very well. LeMond was also a sort of a loner as well, in a way. But LeMond, when he went to France took his wife with him, Cathy, who was his crutch, if you like. She was the person that enabled him to survive there. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, just uh, yeah, just, there, are, there are these odd quirks and paradoxes to his character. But but you also make the point that um, the nature of his personality probably held him back in terms of becoming maybe a true giant of the sport in the sense of I think there's a line about somebody like Armstrong or Hino 
being leaders of men mm. they could gather people around them they could rouse the troops Miller was was never going to take it to that level was he? Miller's big opportunity to become a, a, a grand champion I suppose was when he left the French team Peugeot and joined Panasonic in 1986 uh, he spent two years at Panasonic and Panasonic was a Dutch team that was run by Peter Poss who was a real dictator the emperor he was known as and, and he and Miller rubbed each other up completely the wrong way but you know had Miller Poss was desperate to win the Tour de France and Miller was one of the best you know one of the potential winners of the Tour who was out there yeah, well, if Miller was going to win the Tour it would have been in that team and it would have been with him buying into Poss's methods and his style of leadership and he, he couldn't do that he hated being told what to do. He hated being ruled with this iron rod that 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 Post wielded, and that you know that the, the eventual falling out they had was pretty absurd. I did get a bit more information on this after the book came out. Uh, one of the one of the moments where they that sort of symbolised the, their deteriorating relationship was when it was at the Grand Prix of Zurich, I think, and the desserts was were brought to the table, and uh, if I remember correctly, it was creme brulee. And um, Miller got up to leave, and Poss stood up and said, "You will sit down and eat your dessert." And Miller was like, "I don't like creme brulee." And he said, "Well, I don't care. You're eating it." He says, "No, I'm not." And he just wandered off, and mm. that was it. That was—I'm <laughs> not sure that was the end of the relationship, but that—that that was certainly. Uh, yeah, but I guess the point was that he wasn't trying to to force him to eat the creme brulee. He wanted them to be. He wanted the team to dine together and to be a team. Exactly. And Miller rejected that. Exactly, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and again, one of the, the, the curious quirks on the, on the subject of, of, of food is Miller was a vegetarian, mm. which was very unusual and, and again set him apart from people and made him a little bit weird and odd in other people's eyes. I remember Roach talking about, you know, when he was a teammate of Miller's, Miller would come down to breakfast with all these little, or to dinner, with all these little bags of nuts and seeds and things like that. And people would look at him very, as if he was mad, and, and he would ask for food without sauce and all the rest of it. And again, this wasn't the done thing. To this day in France, you know, you're given, a, you're given certain foods and you're expected to eat them. It's very difficult to be a vegetarian in France, even even now. You know, but Miller wasn't bothered what other people thought. He, he did his own thing. And as Roach said, you know, nowadays... All the riders are coming to dinner with little bags of nuts and seeds. Well, that was an interesting part of it. I mean, he was a real pioneer in the kind of scientific side of, of the sport, wasn't he, in terms of the calorie counting? And uh, it was an interesting, um, I think it's a, I don't know if it was a cycling magazine, they asked um, for writers to, to detail their, their training plans. Um, and, and Miller was first to respond. Mm. And he went into great detail about how how he trained and how he ate and you know what Martin as we talk I'm just reminded it wasn't creme brulee it was creme caramel, creme caramel I do yeah. apologise it was creme caramel I, don't, I can't believe I didn't, didn't remember that um, but it's the kind of thing that, that, that is important he was, he's a real details man exactly. and his training yeah I mean his, his training was quite legendary he was a real innovator he read a lot you know about diet nutrition training physiology he was he was ahead of his time. You know, I went to in the Trois area where he lived for many years in Champagne country. He he had a teammate nearby, Pascal Simon. I went went to see him and and he said, you know, Robert was the first guy to train with ankle weights. And then he sort of paused and looked thoughtfully. He said, in fact, he was the only guy to train with ankle weights. 
you know, uh, and he would do things that were hugely experimental. Like the, you know, Graham O'Brien was like that. We seem to have a tradition. Craig McLean was like that as well. Mm-hmm. We seem to have a tradition of this in Scotland. Maybe it's when you're outside the, you know, when you're on the fringes or outside the mainstream, you you come up with your own solutions, your own ideas. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the, the fascinating aspects of the book. I thought was the level of research which you obviously undertook here. Um, you spoke to, you must have interviewed so many people, um, but it was a real jigsaw puzzle of you know piecing together things from old cycling magazines, from old newspapers, and in, in the pre-internet age, mm. you know, it, it must have been a real task. The, the internet did exist, but it wasn't. It wasn't. Well, but but it, not when yeah. Can you, can you oh, I see. Be, sorry, yeah, yeah, yeah. Being documented. Yeah, no, it was that was that was fun though. You know, it, it, it's not as much fun searching for things on Google, is it? No. Um, going to libraries and looking at old newspapers and magazines is far more fun, and you get so much more out of it because mm-hmm. when you're flicking through a, a newspaper from July 1984, you see the report, but you also see everything around it. You see the context, what was going on elsewhere in the world, what was happening on that same day, and. That's, you don't get that on Google, no. and, and that and that is a fun part of the research, really fun. I mean, at the time, you go off on so many tangents and there's so many diversions that you take, and at the t- you, you can spend a day sort of researching a library and come home and feel that you've not really achieved anything, but actually you have. Yeah. And this was my first book, and I think the lesson at the end of it was there was an awful lot of research and interviews and things I'd done that, that ended up not being in the book, but. I felt that everything was essential for the book, that, that really the, the key thing is to do too much research. You have to do too much research. You have to Distill interview it. too yeah. many people. And, and, I, and, you know, like anything, you say that I interviewed a lot of people. I think I thought at the end, what I felt at the end was, I wish I'd interviewed more as well, yeah. in a way, in a funny way, because you're always very conscious of the gaps, the people that you didn't get to, that you tried yeah. to. Greg Lamond was somebody I tried really hard to interview mm-hmm. for the book, and I couldn't. Ironically, my next book was about him and, mm-hmm. and, and I did get the interview for that but yeah there was um, you're always you're always conscious that there, you could have got more I suppose as a nature of cycling as a sport that there is a lot of gaps to fill in it doesn't just have a, a kind of linear narrative and mm. fascinating um, line in the book where you're talking about the 1985 Vuelta Espana and an astonishing race in Miller's career and you've got all these papers and documents spread out on the table and you're trying to, mm. to piece together what, mm. what actually happened and, and That's funny. You, you just yeah. about got there but it was a real that, real task I think I stole that, that idea from Jonathan Coe the book I mentioned earlier yeah. I remember there's one bit in his book where he did he, he was trying to solve a particular mystery and he did have all these papers spread in front of him and he described that scene and, and I loved that I loved mm. the idea of you know him agonising over this and trying to piece all these bits together. Um, so I, I, that's a direct. I don't know if that's plagiarism, is it? <laughs> but um, no, I, 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 it was. As you say, the sport of cycling lends itself to uh, writing so well because so much of what goes on is mysterious and we don't see it, and so we have to rely on the accounts of the people who were there to, to piece together what happened. Um, particularly back then and there was so much mystery around what happened on that particular day at the Tour of Spain from you know Robert Miller punctured he had a wheel change 
there was terrible weather, they were all wearing raincoats, so riders weren't so easily identified. That allowed Pedro Delgado, Delgado to slip away, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Perhaps he also sat behind the TV motorbike, which was covering the race for Spanish TV. He was mm-hmm. a Spanish rider. Um, there were allegations of, about that. There was a, an incident of two teammates of Robert Miller's chasing to get back onto the. They'd helped him after his puncture, but they were off the back and they were almost making contact with Robert Miller's group and would have been able to help him in the chase. Yeah. When a level crossing came down, they waited at the level crossing. The train never appeared, and by the time the level crossing went up again, they they couldn't catch they they couldn't catch him. So mm-hmm. you'll never you'll never. Um, be able to tell definitively what happened on that day in that, in that race but all you can do is find out try and find out as much as possible and then you know there are little bits and pieces that you find out like Robert Miller was the subject of a major profile in the Face magazine and, and the interviewer went out to Spain to interview him during that tour of Spain and so his I spoke to him I interviewed him as well as reading the piece and it's just so interesting about what Robert Miller was like in that environment, in that race, in that team. I wonder what the reaction to this book was. Um, obviously, it won awards. It was fantastic reviews. Won um, an award. <laughs> but I like how you made that. Okay, yeah, we'll plural. Pluralise it. Were you surprised at the reaction to the book? What was your reaction to the reaction? It's really funny. When I was writing it, I really felt excited writing it. Mm. I remember I went up to friends of mine have a little house in... Uh, car bridge up in Speyside and I needed to get away somewhere so I went up there for weeks and you know come back down to Edinburgh weekends sometimes and I went up there with my mountain bike and I, I used to ride in the morning mountain bike in the afternoon right in the evening and and I remember just when I was working on it being really it was really thrilling exhilarating working on it because I I was interesting myself I didn't really know how it was going to turn out and it was actually it was while I was up there I started getting emails from Robert Miller which added more excitement to it mm. and I suddenly so suddenly I could see the end of the book but the journey to get there was it was really making me enthused and interested and I was really I loved the process of doing it I did feel that it was a great story really great story and so I was excited by it but of course you're not sure what other people are going to think about it at all but I felt like I'd done the work and I think yeah. that's such an important thing to do in a book I think you read a lot of books where the work hasn't been done frankly mm-hmm. you know there haven't been enough people interviewed mm-hmm. it's reliant too reliant on second secondary sources it's it's what we call a cuttings job you, yeah. you read an awful lot of books like that and and I think that um, if you're writing a book like that it's incredibly hard to make it interesting mm-hmm. whereas if you're writing a book using material that you have gathered mm-hmm. and writing about meetings that you've had with people and journeys that you've taken it's, it's really hard to not make that interesting Yeah, I think and, and fresh and freshness is key to it as well so I felt like I was writing a, a sort of historical biography but it felt it felt new and fresh and, and it was I, I, I really thoroughly enjoyed the process and, and I think that's you know, if you can enjoy writing it, then hopefully people enjoy reading it. Thanks to Richard for agreeing to this interview. Keep up with him on Twitter at RichardMoore73. Check out the brilliant cycling podcast which he hosts. If you like this, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. And if you read a story that you think would make a good feature for the podcast, let us know on Twitter at Backpage Press or email backpage at backpagepress.co.uk. 